After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together with Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. And when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal, charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. We're doing a series, as I said before, on hallowing our lives, spirituality for ordinary times. So finding God in the ordinary. Um, we, are, we are a community that um, many of us have been through various crises, crises of faith or um, just life challenges. Um, and we know what it is to try to find God in those crises. And we also know many of us, um, especially the Pentecostals in the room, know what it is like to, to experience God in those kind of mountaintop moments of connection and joy. But for a lot of us, it's, it's the ordinary times, it's the times in between where we struggle to find God. Um, and so this series has been about addressing that question. How do we cultivate 
um, encounter with God, a sense of God's presence in just the ordinary times of life, in the ordinary rhythms of life. Um, This is another slide that we've been showing to remind you that when we talk about ordinary time, it's a very Christian thing to do because it's in the church calendar, ordinary time. Um, And it's just about, we're just about to move into the purple of Lent. So, yeah, next week. Um, Well, the week after next, we have Ash Wednesday. Um, I was really excited to be reminded that Mardi Gras is... French for Shrove Tuesday. Um, so, yeah, do, do wear something fabulous next week if you come for the community lunch. Um, does anyone know the reason why Mardi Gras is called Mardi Gras? Oh, yeah, but why the, the Mardi Gras in Sydney is called the Mardi Gras? Uh, because it, so it's, it's, it's all from New Orleans. So in New Orleans, they have a big... Mardi Gras on Shrove Tuesday, so a big parade with lots of colourful costumes. So it's sort of inspired by that. So that's how Mardi Gras became Mardi Gras. Blame Louisiana. I always do. Um, So this has been our vision statement in a way uh, for this series, Um, a quote by Frederick Buchner. Um, Our vision uh, for those playing at home is to Listen to your life, see it for the fathomless mystery it is, in the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it, because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. So how do we make all moments key moments? How do we... Find God, find grace in every moment, not just in the crisis, not just in the mountaintop moments, but in every every moment. Um, so that's been our question for the series. And um, I guess we began by saying uh, step one might be therapy for you. Um, if you if you are a survivor of of church trauma, um, if you have been brutalized and damaged by your experience of church, then it may well be that addressing that is the first step towards experiencing God again in the ordinary Um, because it may well be that your experience of being brutalised, your experience of trauma is is the biggest obstacle to you trusting God again and being able to to seek God in the ordinary. So that might be um, the first step. Um, But beyond that, we, we talked a bit about um, the fact that often we have been taught to see God only in the extraordinary, to see God only in um, things that are lit with neon in the sky. Um, and so that the reason we miss God is not because God is not always in and around us, but because we've just been taught to ask the wrong questions of what God is doing. Um, so this, was a, this slide was an illustration of that. Um, does anyone remember what's in the slide? A snake. There's a snake. Can you see the snake? It's, uh, <laughs> it's there. Can you see it? Anyway, 
There's a snake in the picture. I can't be bothered. Um, but this, yeah, this picture is kind of a, a symbol of um, the fact that often things, it's not that things are absent, but that we're just asking the wrong questions that enables, that means that we don't see it. Um, and so we talked about questions like, where do we see peacemaking around us? And where there is peacemaking, that is where God is. Where do we see reconciliation around us? Where we see reconciliation, that is where God is. Where do we see forgiveness around us? Where do we see people working for justice around us? That is the work of God. So that was the first thing that we talked about seeking to ask different questions that would enable us to see what God is doing um, rather than the questions that perhaps we've been taught to. Um, we also talked about building habits and practices into the rhythm of, of our life. Um, so we mentioned, I mentioned that before, just things like meditation, things like spending time with nature um, that enables us in, in, the, beginning, in the busyness of life um, to quieten our mind, to quieten our heart. Perhaps to hear the voice of God, um, which so often is a whisper rather than a shout. Um, in this community, we believe in a non-coercive God, a God that doesn't coerce us. Um, and so often a non-coercive God requires stillness to be able to speak to us. And last week, um, Shane talked about uh, vocation. And um, we looked at these um, three wonderful questions. We, I guess, challenged the notion that vocation is just about what you do for a job. Um, we challenged, I guess, a very narrow sense of vocation um, and suggested that rather than it just being what you do for a job and therefore if you're unemployed or you don't know what you want to do for a job, you have no vocation, um, that that is really to miss what vocation is all about, that instead we should be asking ourselves, what brings me alive? What do I find myself doing? Um, what are the things that I can't not do in my life? And what need do I find myself drawn to? Um, there's that wonderful quote from PP, also known as Parker Palmer, um, vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Um, but today I want to take um, a different angle on ordinary time um, and suggest um, getting back to that Buchner quote, um, that one of the ways that we can use ordinary time is to use the boredom to prepare for the pain. To use the boredom to prepare for the pain. That we can use ordinary time. One of the most important uses of ordinary time is to use it to prepare ourselves to be able to find grace in the next crisis. Um, so... I've entitled this, Ordinary Time is a Good Time to Build an Ark.
Because at some point, sadly, ordinary time will end. There will be loss. There will be um, a different, a new crisis. It's unavoidable in life. But how we get through these crises depends on what we do in ordinary time. This is where we get to me ruining the cry for you. The cry, as you sow, so shall you reap. I love the King James Version. So who, who's watched it? Okay, I've got quite a few people. But everyone else is happy for me to ruin it. This is your last chance to leave. Feel free to storm out, sorry. Yeah, yeah, we could do it. It's only four hours. So we just quickly watch it. Um, um, so the, the reason I want to ruin the cry for you is because I think it is an incredible parable of the fact that what you reap in a crisis is what you sow in your ordinary life, in your ordinary time. Um, so the cry features uh, a couple. Um, and this couple are traveling on a plane um, back from the UK to Australia. Um, you don't need to know why. Um, but they, they have a young baby, um, and the, the baby is very unsettled. The mother is very sleep-deprived. Um, and at a certain point in um, the flight, the mother gives the baby some medication. Uh, obviously, it has some kind of cold, some baby Panadol or something like that. Um, Unfortunately, she's put her medication and the baby's medication in identical bottles, clear bottles. Um, So she is pretty sure that she's tasted the medicine before she gives it to her baby to make sure it's the right one. Um, But a number of hours later when they're driving in the car to their destination, they discover that the baby has died and they... And she immediately thinks, in my sleep deprivation, I have accidentally poisoned my child. Um, but what's really happened is that her husband at the airport gave the baby another dose of the medicine and he didn't check which was which. And so it was actually him that poisoned the baby. So they're in this car driving together while this mother is disintegrating inside because she feels like she's accidentally killed her child. And her husband is sitting next to her knowing that it was him, but can't bring himself to admit that. And so as the next weeks and months unfold, he keeps this secret from her and allows her to go through hell thinking that she's killed her own child and allows this secret to drive them apart, enters his own private hell as well in the process, but puts her through hell. And what we see about this character as as the series unfolds is that 
But this is the character of his life. This is how he lived his ordinary life. He lived his ordinary life before this terrible crisis in a cowardly, self-promoting way that escaped always from vulnerability, that escaped always from honesty and confession. He was a spin doctor for a government minister in the UK. Um, and so his whole life is about deception. His whole life is about protecting himself and others from the truth. And so he has, his, the way he has lived his ordinary life up to this sudden moment of devastation and crisis means that in that moment in the car where he has to decide between confessing what he has done and allowing his wife to continue in this misapprehension that she's killed their child. In that moment, he, cho- he chooses cowardice. He chooses to hide the truth. And it reminded me of Peter and Judas. That moment in the car was the moment where he decided whether he would follow the path of Judas or would follow the path of Peter. Because Peter and Judas both betrayed Jesus. We often think of Judas as as the betrayed or the betrayer of Jesus, but they both betrayed Jesus. What's made Peter and Judas different was not what they did in betraying Jesus, but what happened afterwards. Tragically, Judas chose to hide from the one that he had betrayed, um, the ultimate act of hiding. He killed himself. But Peter didn't make that choice. What's extraordinary if you look at the Gospels after Jesus' death is that when the, in all the Gospels, when the resurrection reports, when the women first come to the disciples and say, that the tomb is empty. It's Peter and John who are the ones that run to the grave to see for themselves. And we forget, it's, it's so easy for us to forget Peter's betrayal, to forget that he is, has he told anyone? We don't know, but that he's holding this dark and terrible secret that the very last thing he did in relation to to Jesus was this act of betrayal, and yet he still runs to see. And then in this, in this story, he and four or five other disciples are all on this boat. Um, but when he realizes it's Jesus, he leaps from the boat into the water. He can't even wait for the boat to get to shore. He has to leap into the water and get to Jesus as quickly as he can to be face-to-face with the one that he betrayed. It's an extraordinary thing. I'd never noticed before that um, that he was naked in the boat. Had some interesting fishing practices back in the day, didn't they? Um, 
But I wonder about that detail. And none of these details are accidental. And I wonder about the detail of the nakedness. Why? Any thoughts? Why? <laughs> Why are we told that he was naked in the boat? Why is that? Sorry? Because it was very hot. <laughs> Any other thoughts about why, why would his nakedness be important? I'll give you the microphone, Amy. I was just thinking that there's a few little details in here that aren't necessarily that important. Like, do we need to know exactly how many fish? There were 153, not like about 150, but like maybe there's just detail added. Exactly. Well, they, maybe they discount. They've got to sell them or something. I don't know. But maybe the little details are just added to show that it's like a true, this is someone recounting a story um, that really happened. It's not like it's got all the little anecdotes and details and bits and stuff. Anyway. Yeah, so is this like, um, yeah, like some kind of alibi that you create where you put in some incidental irrelevant details to try to convince people that it's true? That's a possibility. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Why... why? Why are we told that he's naked? I don't, just so you know, I don't know. But uh, so there's no, I'm not going, oh, are you going to guess it? Yeah, vulnerable. so Stuart just said, to show vulnerability. Yeah. It, oh, yep. The other detail is that it makes a point that he put on clothes before he jumped in the water. So maybe it's the contrast between the two, that he was, but then he, like, almost out of respect for meeting Jesus. It seems smarter to hold your clothes above your head as you jump in. And then, you know. Um, the thing that occurred to me, and just total speculation, but I wonder if there's a... There's a reference to the Garden of Eden here. Um, I mean, nakedness, if you think about the Bible and nakedness, um, Adam and Eve are just about the only naked people in the whole of the Bible, prudish Bible. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus is often told, uh, suggested that it's Jesus that is the new Adam, um, so the sort of anti-Adam, um, the new humanity. Um, but I wonder here if in a little way... We're meant to see Peter as a new Adam, as a different kind of, of humanity. Um, that whereas Adam and Eve, when they betrayed God, hid from God um, and then blamed each other for what they'd done. Here we see Peter, unlike Adam and Eve and unlike Judas, not making excuses, not blaming anyone else for his betrayal, but actually, and not hiding, but actually running to Jesus, running in a sense to be face-to-face -face with the one he betrayed. Um, he's willing to accept that pain. And we see that at, at the end. Peter felt hurt because Jesus said to him the third time, To be brave, to be vulnerable, to, to confess things that we've done to people that we have hurt and betrayed is a painful thing. It's a very painful thing. It requires incredible bravery. But we see Peter demonstrating that kind of bravery, that willingness to endure pain here. 
the pain of standing face to face with the one that you've betrayed. And I think in that, um, Peter becomes a model for us. I feel like Peter is commissioned to lead the church, not because of his faith, but because of his courage and vulnerability in not allowing guilt and shame to drive him from Jesus, not hiding from Jesus, but seeking Jesus out. Why is Peter like this in a crisis? Why was Judas like Judas was? We don't know. But I guess the important question for us is how can we cultivate habits? How can we live in such a way in the ordinary times that when that sudden crisis comes, we act more like Peter rather than like Judas? That's a real question. And I think it's an incredibly important question for us to reflect on. Um, how, how do we live in the ordinary day-to-day, in our ordinary day-to-day life in such a way that when a sudden crisis comes, when some kind of mistake that we make or some kind of way in which we act results in great pain or tragedy for someone else, how do we prepare for those moments so that we don't hide, so we don't make their pain worse but that through courage and vulnerability, we actually do everything that we can to bring grace into that experience of crisis and pain. Any thoughts? What are the habits we need to cultivate? Um, I think the first thing that came to mind to me was um, learning to be honest with yourself and, um, yeah, and putting that into a habit. Um, Yeah, maybe sitting down with yourself every now and then and, um, yeah, fully reflecting on shit stuff that we all do and, yeah, being honest with yourself. Um, For me, something, sorry... um, I, I, I'm a believer in therapy and in therapy at the moment, what's coming up for me is the difference between passivity and being assertive in relationships or friendships. And um, I thought a great definition of passivity is when you respect the needs and rights of someone else, but you don't actually respect the needs and rights of yourself. And, and through that, uh, yeah, so that's something that's coming up for me. I want to change in my ordinary life is learning to to be just as respectful of my own rights and needs as I am at of listening or or respecting other people's rights and needs. Thanks. Um, I'm sort of I, the the quote of like um, I don't know who said it of how you do anything is how you do everything. Um, in the for me those tiny moments of honesty, confession, sucking it up, or just yeah, kind of where your ego feels really crushed in a tiny, tiny way, like the practice of 
confronting someone, admitting something to someone is really is hard for me. Like, and I imagine the only way I can be ready on a bigger scale is is being ready, and that nothing is small. Everything means something bigger um, down the road. Yeah, um, Richard Raw says that he prays for one small humiliation every day, um, and I think that's a wonderful prayer to have for all of us to say, I, I want to yeah, have that experience of humiliation and to try to respond well in that moment every day to practice for those big humiliations. Yeah. Um, I think of back when I was at school, we studied uh, Seamus Haney's poetry and who's an Irish poet um, who died in 2014 or something, um, who he writes, he's not particularly religious himself, but as an Irish man has a huge appreciation for ritual and, and tradition and, and um, Catholicism and, and laments the relationship between religion and the, the, during the Troubles. But something that comes through in his poetry really beautifully is um, the need for ritual, even in the absence of... Um, having an organized religion or, or rejecting kind of organized structures of religion. And so like in these poems, like there'll be death sequences and he like um, alludes to all this, like the importance of ritual and structure that helps so many people um, process very traumatic events because it's, there's the ritual and the, um, and humans love patterns and we love like, lulling ourselves into these patterns that help us process these kind of key traumatic events, I think. And, um, yeah, I don't know. For me, I've just been thinking about, like, especially around things like death, like um, how in societies around the world always seem to have these very ritualistic things that really help them push through very difficult times. Yeah. Makes me think about confession, the way... Obviously, within the Catholic tradition, confession is a very specific thing that you, you go and you confess to the priest. Um, I grew up an Anglican saying, you know, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, Lord, that kind of stuff. Um, so these kind of ritualized things, a lot of us are uncomfortable with those, but um, trying to reappropriate, like try to bring things like confession back into our life in a different way, I think can make a big difference in this kind of stuff, cultivating confession. About confession, because it's actually written in the Old Testament that the Jews used to confess to each other. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, that's the thing for a lot of us, I guess, the thing is to go, how do we, how do we stay connected to these really important aspects of our faith in a way that makes sense to us now because we might not be comfortable going and chatting to a Catholic priest about what we've done but, but confessing to each other um, and cultivating that practice and, and you know it relates maybe to what V was saying before about um, cultivating a practice of confession just with ourselves um, confessing to ourselves things that we have, have done um, Hey Meg just wondering, too, if in part of responding well in a crisis is just as much of 
yes, confessing to ourselves and being honest and vulnerable with others, but also in that being able to come to a place of um, liking ourselves and having people speak truth into us because I feel like you're much able, much better to respond honestly out of a place of, oh, I'm, I know who I am and I can own that because there's enough supporting me to get on with who I am and there's good in me as well as this crisis. So just, um, yeah, having people that can speak that positive truth as well as we can share my crap, you can also speak that love and you're valuable. Um, We respond better when we feel okay. Yeah, that is so, so important. And um, it's that paradox where it's only by dealing with our shame that we can actually experience guilt and humiliation in a healthy way. Um, And to be in a community which constantly reminds us that the truest thing about us is that we are the beloved of God is at the heart of becoming a person that can experience humiliation and guilt and can be honest and vulnerable because underneath that is this deep sense of being worthy of love. So helpful. Thanks, Meg. Um, So we have to be out of here in a little while, so I might finish the FNCC snowball there um, and just finish with a couple more things. Um, So our favourite Lutheran pastor, Nadia Bowles-Weber, I was listening to her recently and she talked, she as an alcoholic herself, um, talked about how often um, AA meetings happen in churches and that often they much more Christian than what happens in the actual church um, because of the practices of incredible vulnerability and confession that happens there. Um, She says the church, more true Christian community is practiced in church basements where AA meetings are often held in the States than in the church sanctuary. Um, Walter Brueggemann says that the church isn't going to be the happiest place but that it should be the most honest place. I think one of the difficult things, and I'll I'll finish with this, one of the difficult things is that a lot of us come from churches where our pastors seem to be constantly telling everyone in their community that they, the pastor, have it all together and that all you really need to do is to listen to me, live the way I live, do what I do, and you'll have it all together as well. So we're being told week in and week out to not bring to the community the things that you're ashamed of, to not bring any sense of brokenness or not being together because that's not what we do here. What we do here is try to have it all together like the pastor does. So pastors need to take a huge degree of responsibility for encouraging people in the ordinary practice of their lives to be people who hide rather than people who are honest. A few, about six years ago, seven years ago, um, I was walking with, I just had Tilly back then, my oldest daughter, she was about maybe about 14 months old um, in the pram 
and um, I was pretty sleep deprived and she'd been crying pretty much the whole morning and so I was pretty frustrated with her. And so she was in her pram, strapped in, and I was pushing the pram. Now, with the pram that we have, there's a little loop where you're meant to put your hand through before you hold on to the handlebars so that if anything happens, you're still, even if you let go of it, you're still got, you're still holding it. Um, but on this morning, I didn't have my hand through that, and I wasn't even gripping particularly tightly on the pram. I was just pushing it, um, pushing it too fast as well. And we came up, you know, it's North Fitzroy, so we came up to a little cross street where there were kind of just cobbles in where the, the curb was rather than a proper curb. And one of the stones was missing from that curb. And so as I just pushed this pram too fast down the footpath, one of the thin front wheels dropped into this hole and the pram instantly flipped forward out of my hands and landed with my daughter face down on the road and the pram sitting on top of her. And that was a moment, that was my, that was my the cry moment. That was a moment where I, I could have killed my child. I could have permanently injured her um, as I stood there for that split second before I turned the pram over, I had the same experience that that man had in the cry of going, oh, my God, what have I done in this split second of careless distraction, not following the steps that you're meant to follow as a parent? I've potentially killed my child or done her a terrible injury. And... Luckily, I'm not going to say this was God because I don't believe that's how God works, but I was incredibly lucky and she had a slightly chipped tooth and a bit of blood in her mouth and that was the only damage that she sustained. But that was, that was not anything to do with my, what I deserve. It was pure, pure luck. I'm so grateful for that. But that, that could have been exactly that moment for me. That could have been the moment where my life completely crumbled around me, where my marriage disintegrated as I was potentially unable to, to live with what I'd done, to seek forgiveness, to be vulnerable in the way that I needed to be, to have any hope for my family to hold together. I tell you that story just because, A, it can happen to any of us, can happen to all of us. And B, your pastor, your pastors don't have it all together. All of us, like all of you, are one split second, one bad decision, one moment of distraction while driving away from a world of pain and humiliation. So don't think that we have it all together. We, like you, are here to cultivate the kind of honesty, the kind of vulnerability, the kind of courage that it takes to survive those moments and to find grace in them, just as we want to cultivate the honesty and the vulnerability and the courage in our ordinary day-to-day lives. 
to be connected with each other, to be honest, to confess, and to have life. So what we're going to finish with is for communion, I'm going to to read um, a kind of visualization practice again from the very lovely Richard Raw. Um, a practice where we stand stand before the cross. I just wanted to say one other thing too before I do this reflection, and that is that um, if you think back to moments like that in your life where you haven't confessed where you, or where you've hidden and all that. Um, this talk is in no way meant to be a judgment of that. Absolutely not. Um, it's merely a reflection on the fact that, that that is a descent into hell, that hiding and holding something like that, which just kind of, yeah, rots our soul. So it's not, there's no judgment in that. We do, all of us choose that Judas path all the time. Um, there's no judgment of us doing that. It's more an invitation to cultivating a way of responding that brings life rather than a descent into hell. Okay, so here we go. Just going to read this reflection and then we'll eat and drink together. Picture yourself before the crucified Jesus. Recognize that he became what you fear, nakedness, exposure, vulnerability, and failure. Jesus became sin to free you from sin. Jesus became shame to free you from shame. Jesus became what we do to one another in order to free us from the lie of punishing and scapegoating each other. Jesus became the crucified so we would stop crucifying. He refused to transmit his pain onto others. In your imagination, receive these words as Jesus' invitation to you from the cross. My beloved, I am yourself. I am your beauty. I am your goodness, which you are destroying. I am what you do to what you should love. I am what you are afraid of, your deepest and best and most naked self, your soul. Your sin largely consists in what you do to harm goodness, your own and others. You are afraid of the good. You are afraid of me. You kill what you should love. You hate what should transform you. I am Jesus crucified. I am yourself, and I am all of humanity. And now respond to Jesus on the cross hanging at the center of human history, turning Jesus around. So these are our words. Jesus crucified, you are my life. You are also my death. You are my beauty. You are my possibility. And you are my full self. You are everything I want and you are everything I am afraid of. You are everything I desire and you are everything I deny. You are my outrageously ignored and neglected soul. Jesus, your love is what I most fear. I can't let anybody love me for nothing. Intimacy with you or anyone terrifies me. I am beginning to see that I, in my own body, am an image of what is happening everywhere, 
and I want it to stop today. I want to stop the violence towards myself, toward the world, toward you. I don't need ever again to create any victim, even in my mind. You alone, Jesus, refused to be crucifier, even at the cost of being crucified. You never asked for sympathy. You never played the victim or asked for vengeance. You breathed forgiveness. We humans mistrust, murder, attack. Now I see that it is not you that humanity hates. We hate ourselves, but we mistakenly kill you. I must stop, stop crucifying your blessed flesh on this earth and in my brothers and sisters, in all my siblings. Now I see that you live in me and I live in you. You are inviting me out of this endless cycle of illusion and violence. You are Jesus crucified. You are saving me. In your perfect love, you have chosen to enter into union with me, and I am slowly learning to trust that this could be true. Amen. Mm-hmm.